You are listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. This talk was given at 29 West Tolpehawken Street. For more information, visit us at circleofhope.net. Tonight is the beginning of a new season of our talks in our meetings um, about things that Jesus never said. We want to break down some theological misunderstandings that may have worked their way into our culture and our hearts so that we can live more in light of God's freedom and grace. There are a lot of examples of phrases that are so pervasive in our culture that to the point of being religious, Uh, or even getting confused as things that Jesus actually said. So tonight I want to talk about uh, God will never give you more than you can handle. Have you heard this? It's, it's, uh, It's along the same lines of everything happens for a reason, or um, maybe when God closes a door, he opens a window, things like that. These kinds of statements are so common that we want to take some time to examine them and consider where they're coming from. Did Jesus really say that? Is it in the Bible? It gets kind of foggy after we've heard it so many times. I'm glad that the team got us started by uh, reflecting on the rivers of our lives and the directions that life has taken us. Because when the twists and turns or unexpected things come, um, or the course is hard, we may have held on to comfort of hearing that God never gives us more than we could handle. A quick search of this statement shows that you can get posters, inspirational cards, and even find some memes. God won't give you more than you can handle. And that asterisk there leads you to the fine print. In case you can't read it, it says, offer valid only, only valid on giant fake looking globes. Your results may vary. Uh, there are extended versions of this phrase saying too, God won't give you more than you can bear. He might let you bend, but he won't let you break. It's essentially meant as encouragement, right? Don't worry, this won't be too much. You're strong enough. God won't let you break. You got this. Uh, If this is the case, if, if we can bear what we have been given, then God must think that some of us are truly heroic. There's, there's an inspirational poster for that, too. You might have this one up in your cubicle. Or your coworker might. I'm sure you've seen them. My friend Maria tells me that there is a similar saying in Spanish, even, that uh, it's a, it crosses cultures, that essentially translates, God squeezes you but does not choke you. The image is that you know, God has you by the throat but won't suffocate you, meaning that God can be hard on you, and, you, and put you through tough circumstances, but not so much that you will die. He doesn't kill you. I think the best intention of every version of this statement 
is for our comfort, either, either for someone else or for yourself. It could be a helpful expression of trust in the midst of darkness, uh, intended to give hope when you feel doubt or comfort when you're suffering. Depending on how you say it or how it is said to you, you may or may not find it comforting. But I think it is meant for encouragement. When we, when we feel like we're going to break or that we can't bear it anymore, we want to know that we're going to make it, that this obstacle, this, this bending, um, won't be the end of us. We will keep flowing like that Mississippi River Erica talked about. So what is meant for comfort can get into our heads a picture of God who is at work inflicting suffering and pain. Is that how God works? Is that what our trials are all about? Is it always something that God is doing to us? Even with the best intentions behind it, this phrase falls short, or falls apart, excuse me. If you look at what it's saying about who God is and how God relates to us. This word of comfort is inadequate, is an inadequate prescription to ease suffering. And it's not consistent or a complete description even of who God is or how God works in the universe. So how did it become so popular? I know that in my upbringing, I was encouraged to memorize a verse from 1 Corinthians that seems remarkably close to this saying. And I wonder if this is why people think Jesus said this, or at least that it comes from the Bible. So take a look at this one. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to humankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. This is the um, New International Version of this verse. But I was taught to memorize the King James Version. It says, there hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above what you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape, that ye may be able to bear it. Growing up, I wondered about this verse, about a God who would tempt me towards bad things, but also give me a way to escape the temptation so that I could choose the good things. Who does that? Why would a loving God do that? Set up a trap to test my faithfulness. Even a good friend who knows I'm trying to eat healthier isn't going to set a bowl of ice cream in front of me, me, if they know me, so that I can choose the right thing. And actually, the Greek word for temptations and tempted can also mean trials. But my Greek brother-in-law confirmed on this trip when I was talking to him about this verse and this saying, I told him my understanding from childhood and he was alarmed. He pulled out his phone right away and he went through the verse word by word in Greek telling me the meaning of this verse is actually the opposite of what I had believed as a teen. 
He said that trials are common to humankind, but God is faithful to be with you and will lead you through so that you can escape and overcome. I can see this now, but at the time that I memorized those words, I didn't understand it. It looked an awful lot like God never gives you more than you can handle. More context for this verse in 1 Corinthians also helps. This is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the Corinthian church in an attempt to resolve questions and to solve problems in the life of the church. And here Paul is addressing the problem of idolatry and faithlessness as the next verse that follows tells us. It's not about temptation in general. The temptation for some people at that time was to maintain their social position and relationships by practicing in the normal religious practices of the Corinthian public life, which included eating food in the temple of false gods. And Paul's encouragement was about trusting God to provide for them another way. They didn't have to participate in these idolatrous practices. He was teaching them how to think and live and behave in this new way of Christ, encouraging them to not participate in the dominant cultural ways. So what are the dominant cultural beliefs that we get into in this area of trials and suffering? 1 Corinthians is all about the tensions between the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of the cross. Paul was trying to help the new church there actually live a different way, like the way of Jesus, even when it looks like foolishness to the rest of the world. When we believe that God gives us only what we can handle, we are assuming that God wants us to handle things. But our hands are very small. And anything we can handle isn't enough. God certainly wants us to handle more than we can fit into our own hands or our own capacity. We have capacity with God far more than our own, more than we could even imagine. And our lives aren't even in our own hands anyway. If we're honest, we know that we can't handle our own lives. But the demand to do so is probably the most damning wisdom of the world and also probably the hardest one to overcome. I think the wisdom of the world teaches us that, that I, me, the, my autonomous self as an individual needs to handle whatever God gives. And that God is, is uh, doling out justice fairly and equally for all. And that you need to control the situation more than feel it. This wisdom of the world makes it really hard to see the God that's revealed in Jesus. When, when we were driving on our trip in Greece, when we were driving this five-hour drive from Thessaloniki, where my sister lives, to Athens, we were passing right by Mount Olympus. You can see it right here. We'll come back to that. 
There's the drive. Thessaloniki is at the top. Athens is at the bottom. And the red circle right there is Mount Olympus. Mount Olympus is the highest mountain in Greece. It has 52 peaks and is 9,573 feet high. We were right next to it on the highway. And yet we couldn't see it. It was the rainy day and the clouds had rolled in. So from our view, I couldn't see anything but fog and mist. My sister assured me that Mount Olympus was right there and that it was glorious. She even got out her phone to show me a picture she had taken from that spot months before. But I just had to trust her that this massive presence was right beside us, even though I couldn't see it. I think it's kind of like this to trust God when I'm clouded by suffering. When, when my sense of smallness and lack of vision for who God is kind of gets in the way. The weather of all of that and my emotions can change dramatically from day to day. But the reality of God's presence doesn't change even when I can't see it clearly. The person who says God never, le never gives you more than you can handle with sincerity, I think really is saying with Paul in 2 Corinthians 4.8, I am pressed but not crushed, persecuted but not abandoned, perplexed but not given to despair. I will trust God. God's presence is with me in my suffering. Jesus is with me in my suffering. I'm not alone. If you say it that way, you can say it all you want. Because what Jesus told us is that we are not alone. That is what he said. You will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. I am leaving, I'm leaving, but the comforter will come. We have the Holy Spirit, the presence of God with us. And when Jesus faced the situation that he thought he couldn't handle, his response was, thy will be done. In Luke 20, 22, it says, Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down, and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Jesus doesn't describe how it works or offers some demand upon God. He relates honestly. He feels the anguish of what he is already and about to endure. And he prays earnestly in that anguish. And he calls to his friends for help to pray with him. In, in all of this, he demonstrates his love and trust, his, his relationship with God. There's no formula or system of God's sovereignty or, or even theological treatise to go by. He retreats to the Mount of Olives to pray and be with God. And scripture says, 
he went to the Mount of Olives as usual. This was his practice, to be with God in a posture of prayer and this place of refuge among the olive trees. I saw a lot of olive trees on this trip. But I actually want to show you another kind of tree that we visited. I hope that this image will help you think about what you can do even this week to cultivate the kind of trust that Jesus demonstrated in the midst of his anguish. How, how do we trust? How do we build the kind of trust that Jesus had? I'll click that off for a second. When our lives are full of trouble and tension and conflict and grief and loss and uncertainty, that was the picture I had back up there. <laughs> when we feel as though all of this is on us to bear, what do we do? In Circle of Hope, we cultivate cells. We, we gather in circles of 10 or so people with Jesus at the center of us to make an environment where we can relate to each other and to God in tangible ways. We need to see and feel and touch others around us who can be an embodied demonstration of God's presence with us. The cells are a place where we get the opportunity to be real, to feel what we're feeling, to pray and be prayed for, and to be supported by others when, we're just, when we just can't see and we don't have answers. In the village of Sakarada, which is built on the side of the mountain of Pelion in Greece, uh, there is one of the oldest trees in Europe. And while we were staying on that mountain, we drove to see it, and they've built up this square around the tree. It's a really charming place with courtyard with, with tables and chairs and cafes surrounding it. And there were plenty of locals sitting around and smoking and drinking cappuccinos. Uh, you could tell some of them come there very often. Here's the picture of it. They've cultivated a practice of gathering there under these massive branches. Children were playing in and around the tree, my own included. There's a picture from the other side. We had to take lots of pictures to try to get the perspective of how big it is. According to foresters, it's around 1,000 years old. The circumference of the trunk measures 14 meters, which is almost 46 feet. And the crown of the, this is a plane tree, by the way, the crown of this tree is so large it's difficult to measure, but estimates put it around uh, the perimeter around 131 feet. The branches, oh, I think I have one more. Nope. Oh, okay, sorry. The branches are as thick as a tree trunk, as you can see. One of those branches is leaning against a marble wall in the back. It's, it's holding it up. Um, I think being a part of a cell is, is like going to this tree. It's a place for anyone who wants to cultivate a place for shelter. Gathering here is gathering around Jesus. Relating here is relating to Jesus. Learning to love and trust here is learning to love and trust God. The best way to trust the Father is to do what the Father sent Jesus to do, to love one another as I have loved you, to lay down his life for his friends. 
Being a part of a cell is a way to, to do this, to work out that obedience under someone else's control, even when you feel like you can't control what's going on in your own life. It's a way to surrender your desire to control and to cast off your shackles of independence. We need each other. It help, we help each other relate to God. When our lives change, when we're clouded by fears and we can't see God in the midst of our suffering, going to a place as usual like Jesus did can help us. Going to pray, meeting with people that we get to know and relate to, helps us relate to God and to be transparent and honest. I can appreciate the person who finds comfort in this phrase that God won't give you more than you can handle. But I also reject its excesses. If you find comfort in this phrase, I think that's fine. But if you don't, Jesus has a less concrete and maybe more uh, less instantly gratifying or uh, satisfying answer. And that is trust the Father. I think this less simplistic but more relational and more complex answer is leads us to comfort that's longer to come to, but it's much more lasting. Thanks for listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. If you want to talk about it or get connected to a cell, you can find one under our Connect drop-down at circleofhope.net.